Well, last week, um, continuing the life of Christ, if you recall, we only got through point one. Uh, I had uh, appointing the twelve, we looked at appointing the twelve apostles, and then I had approving the tyrannized for my second uh, point, which was the beginning of the sermon which Jesus delivers after having appointed the apostles. Uh, Today we're changing the outline up because we're going to look at the entirety of this sermon. And you're thinking, well, there's no way we're going to get through that whole thing. Um, But I want to make sure we do because I want us to hear it kind of in one sitting. Um, I want the impact to be uh, perhaps as it would have been uh, then. I want We'll, we'll obviously we'll comment on some things as we go, but I really would like the, the thrust and the impact of it to, to be the thing that we go away with. Remember that Jesus is, uh, is about, he's, he's been bursting old wineskins with this new wine. Uh, we, you know, he, he gave them a new perspective on the Sabbath, and he's appointed his new Israel, and now here he comes with the new law, not new as in replacing, but fulfilling, to help them to understand the true nature of the kingdom that he is declaring, and who is part of this kingdom, and what it entails. And that's what we get here. As you recall from last week, when we stopped uh, with with our lesson, I gave a little intro on on the difference between the Sermon on the Mount and what this account, often called the Sermon on the Plain. And what I would like to do is just allow this to stand alone, to allow this to impact us Itself, So we're not actually going to use Matthew, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, as a commentary, which is often what will happen. I want us to hear, because Luke had a reason for encapsulating it this way, and I want us to hear it that way. Obviously, these are things that Jesus has been saying a lot to a lot of people, and these things are out there, and Matthew and Luke kind of put it together in different ways, but... A lot of it's the same, and you'll hear it. The progression is about the same. It's just a lot less Jewish, which is, of course, what Matthew's audience would have heard. There's a lot more commentary in Matthew's account. I've divided it into four parts uh, because in my translation there were four paragraphs. There you go. That's how deep I am. Uh, Four parts. And first of all, we're going to look at uh, overturning expectations. And then, uh, then, of course, uh, operating in love, opposing hypocrisy, and obeying the master. Now here's the, sitting, the setting again. Remember, he's chosen the twelve. Around him are the twelve, the core, and then in an outer circle, those who are disciples who are following. And then we are told as well there's a larger crowd, even maybe some Gentiles who are there. So he's got a, he's got a core audience, but there are other people listening. It's kind of like when you do a wedding. You know, you have a core audience, but you know everybody's listening. Your core audience are the two standing in front of you, but everybody's listening, so it's got to be for everybody. Well, in this case, here he is declaring this new kingdom. And I want us to hear how radical this would be. Okay, especially having been opposing the Pharisees, who've been nitpicking the law, those kinds of things. Now let's hear with fresh ears this fresh message of the kingdom. So let's do it a section at a time. Verse 20 through 26 is our first section. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. 
Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Thank you. Now imagine hearing that and letting it bite, right? Letting it be a comfort and then a bite, uh, both. Here you have, of course, four blessings and four woes. So balanced against each other. And if you know Matthew's account, we just have the, the Beatitudes, no woes. So here we have these two compared, and they're very, you know, and, and, and you, you can see the connection easily. I don't need to comment on the connection. The word blessed, makarios, can mean a whole bunch of st stuff. It, we, we normally make it a church word, right? You know, we go, blessed art thou, and we go, yeah, whatever that means. Um, you recall the last week I had on the, of course you do, you recall the outline from last week. It said, uh, you know, uh, approving the tyrannized, those who traditionally were downtrodden, the tyrannized. And, and there's in this word blessed, that idea of approval, God's approval on you. I've heard some translated as happy, but it's a little more than that. It's, it's, it's not just circumstantial happiness. It's, there's, there's a sense of approval and solidity with this. Whereas people who were downtrodden and poor and sick and all of those things may have thought this was God's curse on them. And those who were rich and had it all may have thought that was God's blessing on them. Jesus now says, in this age where so many of you are hopeless, guess what? Those of you who are poor, those of you who are hungry, those of you who are weeping, those of you who are persecuted for me, you're the blessed ones. And those who are finding their comfort in their riches, those who are well-fed now, those who are, you know, just have a happy-go-lucky attitude and not really taking, you know, whatever's going on in life. And then, they've, they've, and then who are well-approved by everyone. Woe to them. It's a great word in Greek uh, for woe. It's almost onomatopoetic. You know, it's, it's that idea of, you know, like, it sounds like what it is. Why? That's the Greek word. Why? Meaning... Uh-oh, on you guys. Now, we could parse this and bend it out and, you know, try to, try to do a whole lot with it. But remember when God's people uh, were, when Moses had God's people coming in to the promised land? I don't know if you recall from Deuteronomy 27 and 28, where they had, had folks set up on two opposite mountains to pronounce blessings and curses, blessings and woes. For those who are following the law or not following the law. So this sort of antiphonal blessing and cursing as the people walked through. And now here is Christ having called his new people. And a new round of blessing and cursing. Blessing and woes. And one that would overturn their expectations. Some would say turning it upside down. But in actuality it's turning it again right side up. 
This is the promise that the prophets have been preaching and declaring that in the day of the Lord, these people would be blessed. And those who think they have it all would find out they don't. And here he is declaring it. There's no premium on being poor. There's no premium on being hungry or, or sad or persecuted. That, that's, that's not what he's saying. Pursue those things. We can look through the Middle Ages and the, the movements of the monasteries where a lot of them thought these were a virtues to pursue. Now, if they were doing it in order to get closer to God, that's one thing, but it eventually it devolved into thinking it's some sort of special blessing or like you're closer to Jesus if you're these things. There's no premium on those things. That's not what he's saying. But in an age of hopelessness for so many, here this man comes with new Israel and declares this hope is being fulfilled. Cool stuff. And notice the last, the last comparison of the blessing and woe. And that is, has to do with, look, when I declare these things, when you declare these things, this is going to upset the, the cart. This is going to upset the status quo. People are going to notice, and there's going to be persecution. And when that happens, again, no premium on being you know, I'm being sad or being persecuted, but just know you're blessed. And if people, everyone thinks, you know, when everyone starts saying, oh yeah, great, you, that's when you need to start worrying. Maybe, because as we heard last, that's how they treated the false prophets before. So an explosion of stunning for these people to hear this overturning of expectations and values of everything they had thought before. But that's just the beginning. Having said that, and knowing now that persecution could be coming, he says to them, now those of you who are listening, notice the next line. He says, uh, but I say to you who hear. Okay, so if I've got your attention, now that you're listening, those who are ready for the truth, that's... Uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Now, for those of you who are ready for the truth, here you go. And we're going to get the, the core ethic of the Christian kingdom of God, and that is love. But in order to hear that, let's go ahead and hear the passage itself. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. There's a true dichotomy here of people who take their valuation, their satisfaction, their comfort from what the world says is good or the world's value, what's correct in today's society, will put you up in the media. And those that have that all stripped away, so they really only had God for, to rely upon. Right. And that's always the danger, right? In other words, if the, always the danger with us, I mean, we're, by the way, we're the rich, in case you're wondering. <laughs> we, there's always that danger of us finding our satisfaction there. Whereas, again, no premium on being poor, but for some, that's, that's the only place they can look. Yeah, excellent. Well, let's hear this next. And, th and I want you to hear it, okay? We're so used to the words of Jesus, and we're going, yeah, yeah. Just hear how crazy this is. All right, so... Verses 27 through 38.
pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. All right. Now, if we're not careful, we'll think that uh, this is a checklist for us to, uh, you know, here's our Christian moral virtue, and we can, oh, I did good to an enemy today. Click, you know, that kind of thing. If we're not careful, we'll turn these into a set of rules. And, and, and he's not trying to say that. Uh, he's not trying to say, here's the rules you need to follow in order to earn God's kingdom. He's speaking to people that he's already declared of the kingdom is theirs. These are people who've forsaken everything to follow him. They're the poor. They're the hungry. And he's saying, yours is the kingdom. This is yours. But this is how we're to live. So if you have ears, I want you to hear. And the impact of this is, of course, love and giving and generosity. So forgiveness, love, generosity all at the core of who God is. At the middle of this, he says, because that's how God is. And that's how, therefore, you should be. And I wonder sometimes, when people watch us and how we live out what we say our Christian ethic, I wonder who they think our God is, what our God is like. Is our God a nitpicker? Is our God, you know, one who is standing with his finger pointing in judgment? Is, is he one who is insulating? One who seeks revenge? All, you know, he's saying, no, no, no. The radical explosion of this type of love. Imagine living someplace where this is going on. Imagine if everybody in a community... If, if they thought they harbored something against someone as an enemy, they would seek out trying to do something good for them that day. And you could think of the most wild thing, wildly extravagant thing you would want done to you, and you, you do it to someone. Just think about what that would look like. 
Well, it would be heavenly, wouldn't it? Well, there you go. Exactly. Whereas, think of how people often live. You know, with a chip on their shoulder, ready to react. Don't you know who I think I am? I have my rights. This is mine. You can't. And if everyone did that, well, that would be hellish. Yeah, exactly. So here he is declaring the rule of love. Operate out of love. Now, we can, as you all know, in, the, in classical Greek, there's four words for love. In your New Testament, three are used. And this particular word is agape. It's usually the one Greek word a lot of people know is the word agape. And it has to do with, no, not with your feelings, but with your will. An act of the will, consciously seeking the good of the beloved. That towards which you are demonstrating, or the person towards whom you are demonstrating, that love. It's not necessarily that you have to feel really nice about them. But interestingly, the more good we do for others, it's funny how our feelings sometimes change. Our feelings will catch up with our actions. And right in the middle of this, too, we have what we call the golden rule. You mentioned that about the lady in your pew who, who lived that. See you? See? See what you did there? That's right. Now, other, there, there, were, there were rabbis before Jesus and after Jesus, and there have been philosophers before Jesus and after Jesus, who, who would say, don't do things you don't want done to you. Jesus, however, turned it upside down and said, do things you want done to you. Don't, it's not about insulation and not doing things. It's about living outward and doing extravagantly generous, good things for others. And not just the people in your circle, not just the people who like you. Jesus makes that pretty clear, doesn't he? Yeah, anybody can do that. How about those who are actively against you? How about praying for them? Yes, sir. Exactly. Real, well put. He reverses it. And, you know, it was well attested as well, you know, to go ahead and do good for something you might get out of it. Now, there were people who, there were philosophers and rabbis who would encourage doing good for that which you could gain. Because it will benefit you later. Here, Jesus doesn't have that in mind. The only good he has in mind is the reward we receive from the Father for being like him which is kind of fun. And notice that it ends with, with the measure you measure, that's going to be measured to you. In other words, it's a, the scale you use, it's, it's, it's an image from, you know, in the marketplace measuring out grain. The scale you use, that's the scale that's going to be used for you. Wow. We could pause there for a second. But I'm not, I'm going to let Ron say something. <laughs> The uh, derivation of the word agape is interesting and it can illuminate some of this. The word was originally used in Greek for giving a love offering at a temple to a piece of stone. And there was no expectation really of getting anything back because you're giving it to a piece of stone. I mean, they kind of understood that. But Agape love was taken by Paul and by the Christians as 
as being derived from God, who gives us love, and he really doesn't expect us to respond in a godly way. He wants us to. He gives us ways to do that. But he knows that when he gives it to us, we are like the stone. But he gives it to us anyway. Cool. And that's a kind of a that's kind of the derivation. The derivation, yeah. I did not know that. That's that's cool. It's kind of an irony, isn't it? it is. Well, yeah. The the switch on that. And not only does he give, look at how much he gives. Did you see at the end of this particular little section? He gives an image again from the marketplace. Given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It'll pour into your lap. Um, that has to do with, if, say, you're in the marketplace and, and you're, imagine the, 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 the vendor not only just putting it in there, but shaking it down to make sure it's there and pushing it down some more and then pouring more in so that it overflows. That's the image. And then it's in your lap because you would use the fold of your, which we do now, kids, you know, with their shirt, right? You know, you kids, you know, you're going out picking up acorns or whatever it is, you know, kids will get their shirt and, well, that's it. So it's, it's kind of using your, your tunic, your robe there. So, great image. So the first, of course, what an amazing piece of news to the oppressed. And now this stunning declaration of, of generous, overflowing forgiveness and love and grace. And now he's going to turn to, all right, there's going to be people out there like the Pharisees, for instance, who are going to want to lead you a different way, want to lead you, and I'm asking you to follow me as well. So now we have an opposition to hypocrisy in that particular setting. Now this applies to our own lives. What we're going to read applies to our own lives and how we live out our lives. But I think he had in mind those teachers who are out there, false teachers who can be out there, Pharisees who are out there, who are going to want to lead you in a different direction. You need to be aware. So with that, let's read from verse 39 to 45. And by the way, it says he spoke a parable to them. It's actually a series of, of little parables. You're going to have you know, a parable, a story of a blind guide, and then a story of a man with a plank sticking out of his eyeball, and a story of some trees, and then a story about construction, so there's, of a building. So there's four in a row, these little word pictures. But we're going to deal with these first three. So I'm going to read verses 39 through 45. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. 
people do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Good people bring good things out of good, stored up in their heart. And evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's always kind of sobering, too. Um, that last line there. So you hear the first picture, and all, all three of these are kind of funny. I mean, in some way, we, we forget that, you know, Jesus could be funny. Uh, you know, Jewish parables were funny. Okay, there, there's meant to be some, some humor here. And here, the picture of a blind guide leading some other blind people falling into a ditch. I know that's kind of, he's like, no, that's, that's not funny. Three Stooges, yes, it's funny, okay? It's, it's burlesque, but it's funny, you know? It's just that, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and, and they would have nudged each other. Ah, yeah, that's right, but he gets his point across, right? You got, the, the guy that's leading has to be able to see. And you're following, if you're following someone blind, you're gonna be blind. He says, when you're done, you're gonna be just like your teacher, just so you know. When it's complete, and it's almost as if he's saying, you can do that, but you're just gonna end up being another Pharisee. And then, of course, he deals with, in Pharisees, the one thing he nails with Pharisees is hypocrisy, always. Uh, and there's always a danger of that. Now, are we ever going to fully escape that? You know, people always say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Yes, it is. And what's your point? Now, what they're saying is you're, you're not practicing what you say, you're, you, you teach. But, of course, that's, that's why we need Christ, right? Because we're not there yet. But this, you know, he's, he gives an illustration, and this, is, this one is even funnier because you get the idea of someone trying to get a little, he can't even get close enough to get the speck out because the two-by-four is sticking out of his head right there. A plank is sticking out of his own eyeball. And, of course, the message is clear. Look, you've got to take care of your own business before you deal with, you know, these little niggly things. Now, the point is to get rid of the niggly things. He doesn't say stop. He says, you can, then you can see to remove the speck. With the Pharisees in the larger community, remember, they're, they're about really, you know, having people focus in on the minutia of the law, much of which they've made up in order to purify Israel and actually isolate Israel. We have all this and you don't. So they're, they're getting all these little specks right, but the big giant plank in their eye is that they're not being a light to the nations, which is exactly what they were supposed to be doing. So they've got this big plank of major disobedience in order to get rid of the small little things. Um, churches are notorious for this, right? Uh, we, we, can, we get into all these little, <laughs> little controversies trying to take care of the little bitty details and miss maybe the big one. We want to try to you know, discuss you know, it's always traditionally discussed the color of the new carpet, right? Uh, and not, um, and perhaps not going out and sharing the gospel. You see what I mean? In other words, we can apply this ad infinitum, but uh, hypocrisy. We need to oppose that. And watch out for that in your teachers, and watch for their fruit is the next. And this is kind of funny. You can imagine someone going up to a thorn bush and tying grapes on it, you know. So people say, ah, oh, look at the grapes on this. 
In other words, he's not asking us to add attachments to our lives. He wants us to be certain types of people, and the people we follow. You've got to check to make sure that their works follow what they're saying. Jesus isn't looking for, and, and God's not looking for us just to be parrots. He wants certain types of people, good people, which has to start in here. And the overflow has to come out in our actions. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses the example of a tennis player. Let any, anybody on a tennis court can occasionally hit a good shot, right? I mean, you can, you can occasionally get one right where you wanted it and not sailing all over the place. When you're learning tennis, most of your time is spent shagging balls, right? Most of them over the fence. Hey, a little help, right? But anybody every now and then can hit a good one. Now, that doesn't make you a good tennis player, though. Good tennis player, that comes from long, hard practice so that your muscles are trained to react in certain ways so that you don't occasionally make a good shot. You're a good tennis player. And that, that's Lewis, by the way. Um, so, the fruit, and especially we have to be careful about that with false prophets. Not that any of those are around anymore. But fruit. Now, those are the first three of the pictures. The last one is, this, is, is how Matthew ends his sermon as well. Yikes. All right, so let's hear it. Good. Why do you call me? Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundational rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and this destruction was complete. Again, an illustration with which we are very familiar. Uh, Matthew ends with this very same thing, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's clear, it's not enough to just hear. Ooh, that rhymed. Um, then he planted. It's clear it's not enough to hear. But it's to add here. Oh, there you go. That was all made up right there on the spot. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it right there. In other words, it's... It's actually doing. Having just talked about, of course, hypocrisy, if we were to avoid that, if we're going to avoid in falling in behind false teachers, and if we're going to avoid being false teachers ourselves, it's not enough just to hear what the Master says, but to obey. Why do you say, Lord, and you don't do what I say? And then, of course, the illustration, uh, doesn't need any commentary on my part. It's the impact of it is clear. So having chosen his 12 as apostles and having demonstrated already all of these things, that lavish giving and generosity, that's why people are coming to him, guys. Not because he's, mm, he's just so lavish in his love. They're coming to him. He says to them, that's the kingdom. That's what you're supposed to be about. That's what we're supposed to be about.
That is that firm foundation. Yes, sir. Oh, is this my you got to be quiet moment? You're, no, okay. No, you're exactly right. I've heard prayer used as a weapon. Have y'all been in places where that's happened before? Or someone, okay, let's pray together. And then someone will use, yeah, and they'll use it as a weapon against other people. Uh, they're not talking to God. Um, yeah, we're notorious for that. My favorite, of course, is, especially in the South, you know, oh, she's such a tramp. Bless her heart. <laughs> you know, we just, just add that there. <laughs> what? Yes, sir. Historical note, the first schism or split in the Presbyterian Church in America in the late 1700s was over the concept of a changed life being necessary to be a communicant in the church or not. And so those who said you had to show a changed life to be a communicant in the church split off from the bigger Presbyterian Church. Hmm. Imagine, that's a radical concept that you have to demonstrate through yeah. fruit that yeah. yes interesting yeah and and of course it, it, and one of those things too would be as we you know is is you're going to be a loving forgiving person as well well we're out of time remember we're going to after we pray we're going to pull our chair out just a little so they know which ones to clean okay for those of you that came in a little bit late so they don't have to wipe down every one of them let's pray Thanks again uh, for the blessings of this past week. And now as we anticipate the week to come, uh, we have very clear instructions, which is both comforting and alarming. Um, we always try to scramble to try to figure out what your will is for our lives. And we write books by the hundreds, you know, trying to decipher circumstances to figure out your will when you lay it out right here in a few verses. Our prayer is that as we go through this week, uh, we'll live your will. And it'll be obvious, it'll be evident, and it'll be shocking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.